Today's message is going to be about spiritual warfare and dealing with the attack. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. As most of you know, and I've talked about quite a bit, I grew up in and out of the church. I had just, as, just enough information about Christianity and about the Bible to make me think I might be okay with God. But I really didn't have a good grasp of what salvation was. I cared enough about God to develop a little bit of a system that would make me feel better. I, I decided that no matter what, no matter where I was, where I fell asleep, what condition I fell asleep in, I would pray before I fell asleep and I would, I would ask God you know, to bless a bunch of people, bless my mom, bless my dad, my brother, my grandparents, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, by the way, God, forgive me for any sin I may have committed even if I was committing a sin in that particular moment I was praying. I figured maybe if I buttered God up a little bit, he would then fulfill that request to forgive me. And then if I figured I did that and I died in my sleep or I died the next day, maybe I'd still go to heaven. But there was really no repentance or change in my heart. There's not even a real commitment to try to do better. Just kind of a quick insurance policy for in case I had to stand in front of God, I figured that if I could just point back to all those prayers and all those good things that I did for other people, maybe God would give me a break. I mean, maybe God graded on a curve, and I could say, you know, I wasn't the worst person that ever lived, and hopefully he would kind of just let me into heaven that way. But then I got saved. Then I, I realized what it really means to come to Jesus and surrender my life to him. And for a couple of weeks after I got saved, you couldn't shut me up about Jesus. I remember the night that I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I went to Taco Bell. You know, we all went somewhere after church, and this time it was Taco Bell. And I'm walking table to table. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea about the Bible or anything else, but I'm just telling people, you need Jesus. I just had this fire within my heart that just wanted to see everybody be saved. Tammy and I, you know, that next week we went on a shopping spree at the local bookstore. We spent almost $200 on Bibles and Christian books. We went out, I went out and I bought the huge Life Application Study Bible. Anybody remember those or have one of those? Just huge, thick Bible, even thicker than the one I have here up on the pulpit. It was complete with a leather case, so I would look like everybody else in church. I think the size of your leather case kind of determined how spiritual you were. I don't know if you remember back in the days that, you know, the bigger the Bible, the more spiritual you were. You had your bulletins stuffed into pockets and everything else. And I really didn't know how to read it. I didn't really know how to study it yet, but I just started devouring the Bible. I read it on my breaks at work. I read it on my lunches. I read it before work, after work. I read it on the weekends. I had it with me at all times. I'm serious. I went to the supermarket or to Walmart, and I would be carrying my Bible just in case I had a chance to witness. I had no idea how to use it to witness. I had no idea how to witness, period, but I had it just in case. Even I, I even carried it into the National Guard Armory that I served in once a month. And I think I read the entire New Testament in less than two weeks. And I was amazed at how much stuff was in there and how much it now made sense to me where before I would try to read something that, in the Bible and it would make me feel really bad about myself. 
I remember there was a couple of people in the, in the National Guard that were really praying for me. They were really devout Christians. When we were out in the field, they would have their own Bible study kind of out there in the woods all by themselves. And I went to it a couple of times just because I was curious. And, you know, they would tell me, you know, John, you should just start by reading the Beatitudes. So I did that once. I started reading the Beatitudes. And then I got to Jesus saying, um, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the priests, then you will never enter the kingdom of God. And I got discouraged because I'm like, oh, my righteousness is never going to be as good as a pastor. So, you know, that, that I'm just, I, I use that to illustrate prior to salvation of me not being able to understand the Bible until I had that Holy Spirit living within me and revealing the word of God to me. I found over the period of the next several months that newness wore off. And some of those besetting sins that had been in my life prior to salvation started to creep back into my thoughts. And I found my heart start to yearn for them again. I told my mentors in the faith right away, the people that I was in accountability with, you know, about how, how this stuff was starting to creep back in, and I was worried that I wasn't saved. And they gave me the usual prescription that spiritual leaders give. You need to pray more. You need to read more. You need to avoid you know, situations where you can fall into those sins. And I tried all that, but those temptations kept throwing themselves my way, and I started to question if I did something wrong in the Spirit. And I, somehow I had lost my salvation because I didn't have that, that emotional rush. I didn't have that zeal and that passion I had for Jesus. And if you've been saved for any length of time, you can probably say you've gone through one or two of those seasons in your life. And I have, even while being a pastor. Pastors can get so busy doing the works of the church that the work of the Spirit in their own life gets pushed to the side. And that fire that they're supposed to carry can grow dim. And they just kind of start trudging through the motions of doing church. And I've, I've been there as a pastor. Even when I was in Kenosha, you just get so wound up in, in having to do stuff that you forget the person you're doing the stuff for. I want to talk this morning about this exact kind of attack of the enemy and what God's provision for us is to stand against those attacks. And it's found in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 17. The Apostle Paul is continuing talking about the armor of God. And he says to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that this message be able to rekindle that desire within our heart to have zeal for you, to live a life that matters, to to live a life that promotes the kingdom of God in every way it possibly can. One that points people to Jesus. And one that has an eternal significance in heaven. Father, let us stand before you one day and look behind us and see dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people, who are there because of something we did. That is our desire, because we want to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. And I ask, Father, that you use this message to be able to develop that kind of zeal and desire within our heart, to stand before you and not be ashamed one day. Help us to learn about these two pieces of the armor. In your name, amen. When I was doing this message, 
It took a lot of thinking and, and praying to prepare. And even this morning before Sunday school, I started going through it again and going and slashing out parts of it because this morning when I was, when I, uh, Sunday mornings, I wake up at five in the morning and I go through my message one more time and I kind of preach it to myself is what I do to see if there's anything in there that needs to be clarified more and makes sense more. And by the time I was done, I was up to about 16 pages of sermon. And about eight pages is a 30-minute sermon for me at the rate I talk. And so I decided that I'll split that into two different sermons and preach the rest of it next week and, and, and kind of cut it out. Because I was, as I was meditating about these verses and the other parts of the armor, I had this Holy Spirit thought. And it came to me when I was thinking about the experience that I just told you about at the beginning of the sermon when I first got saved. And when I, was in the prayer, when I was in prayer about this, I heard the Holy Spirit teach me this principle about life. When I was dealing with this idea of zeal and having all this emotional high about God, he, he, I heard the Holy Spirit tell me, he said, a mind that is not prepared and a mind that is not guarded will always be subject to the fleeting and possible, possibly destructive whims of the heart. And I thought that was a pretty deep thought. And I was like, wow. And I realized that the reasons that the church and the individual Christians sometimes are weak and even weaker than our predecessors is because of this idea that, that they are, are going after God in an emotionally driven heart way, but they don't have an intellectual and logical and, and theologically firm foundation to love and trust Him with. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an emotional connection with God. The Psalms, for example, are filled with wonderful expressions of joy toward God, of having happiness with God, of being pleasing to God, and, and all these emotions that we have. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think in the Church of America, we've gone a little too far into the emotion to the point where we've abandoned logic and reason. I mean, after all, the Bible says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Although your sins may be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. He doesn't say, Come to me with guilt, doesn't come to me with, with passion. He says, Let us reason together. Let us look at this and see what is wrong with this. He doesn't say, Come, let me give you a hug and let me tell you it'll be okay. God wants our mind just as much as he wants our heart. Now let me defend that statement for a moment. How many people have you heard right, right when they're caught doing something really dumb say, but I was just following my heart? How much of our society tells you today that we should just be following our hearts? People justify all kinds of junk with this and the result is usually pain. And it usually comes with a distancing of themselves from God through following just their hearts. The Bible destroys this modern idea that we have in America of just following our hearts in Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all other things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. That's a pretty, a pretty blatant description of the human heart there. 
that the heart can be easily deceived, which is why we need the mind. And I need us to have this perspective to appreciate the next part of the armor of God that we're going to be delving into this morning, which is the, the um, helmet of salvation. There are two areas within the human soul that are easy targets for the enemy. They're the heart and the mind. Your heart is very easy to lead away from to be led away from the things of God. The human heart, biblically speaking, with what the Bible is telling us, is as the center of the heart or the center of the emotions. It's very fickle and has a tendency to be led to the left or to the right. I mean, how, how fast can a, a person get angry if you insult their favorite sports teams, for example? You know, if you say the if you say something like the Vikings are really the Vike Queens, you'll get a, re- a very angry reaction from that because it's a matter of the heart. They're not going to look at, you know, the, the Vikings usually have a losing record, although they're doing very well this year. I use that just as kind of a, a small example, but you can see how when we allow the belt of truth to be loosened a little in our heart, that breastplate of righteousness slips just a little bit, and now one of Satan's arrows can find their mark, can it? It'll penetrate our heart, it'll hit our heart, and we'll have a reaction that is not godly. And that's why your mind needs to be the thing that's in charge. And it needs protection of being sure of your salvation. The helmet of salvation is the shield of our mind. If you're a Christian, Satan's attacks, no matter how they come at you, are met for one purpose. To make you doubt your salvation with the ultimate goal of having you turn your back and leave your faith in Jesus. And even if you don't leave your faith in Jesus, it's to marginalize you and decrease your ability to serve him because you're not trusting in what Jesus has already done for you. I came from a church, our original church, it was very focused on external holiness. And that's how it was with me for years. And Satan's arrow to me was how can you call yourself a Christian and keep wanting to do that? How can you call yourself a Christian if you keep falling to this? How can you call yourself a Christian if you keep saying those kinds of words? And that caused doubt within my mind. And I I was thinking maybe this Christian thing isn't working for me and I should just go back to the way I was. You see, that's Satan's goal. To have us question our salvation. And to forget that all of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for Christ on the cross. And our place in heaven is assured through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It's assured. As long as we keep striving with God, Satan cannot pull us back from our salvation. And Satan's attack hasn't changed at all throughout history. We study Genesis 3, the original sin targeted both the heart and the mind. Eve was told, Eve told Satan that God had forbidden them to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, they would die. Satan said, no, you won't die. God's just wanting to keep you under his thumb. He's just wanting to, to keep you down. He's just, he just doesn't want you to be like he is. And you watch Satan or Eve's reaction to Satan's lie. In Genesis 3, 4, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, Eve doubted. Satan is hitting her right in the mind here. He doubted and attacked her mind and her faith. Eve looked. That attack was starting to give ground. And a second look is usually what kills us with sin. Instead of immediately rejecting us, we kind of go, yeah, I shouldn't do that. Hmm. It's kind of the way we are. And then she reasoned. She justified her reaction. She said, it is kind of good for food, isn't it? It looks really good. And then she rationalized. It looks really, really good. And, and this thing is going to do incredible things for me. Then she desired. You see how everything is in her mind up until this point. And now it's made the 18-inch trip to her heart. Now she's desiring. She's starting to lust. Sinful desire is defined as seeking forbidden knowledge when you think about it. No matter what the sin is, you want some type of knowledge that's forbidden by God. And it's a function of our brains first and not always necessarily of our hearts. In other words, she lusted. And as a result of the brain not controlling a heart's desire, that lust came to fruition. And she gave in. And because of this, she spread the sin, which is another goal of Satan, for that sin to spread beyond you. And she gave that fruit to Adam. But then what did Satan do? Say, hey, congratulations, welcome to the team? No. He brought shame. He brought guilt. And shame is used by God to cause grief that leads to repentance. But the enemy twists it and uses it to convince you that you're beyond redemption. That God does not love you and you might as well just give up and enjoy your life because he could never forgive you. And the enemy wants to drive you to commit that kind of spiritual suicide and walking away from God. And that is why salvation is our helmet. It's meant to protect our minds from these kind of attacks. And it's not only to defend, though, it's to counterattack. Which is why, in my opinion, the helmet is part of the offensive side of the armor of God. Here's a few scriptures that show us how the helmet should protect and inspire to live us for God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. That's an action word. That's an offensive word. And it says, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Another function of the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now listen to this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. Again, this is a mind thing. And we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. These are all actions of our mind and they're offensive in nature. By offensive, I mean by being on the attack. Even if it's not against anybody else but ourselves. 
They are meant to strike back against the attack of the enemy and to further our walk with God in becoming more and more like Jesus. Listen, temptation is always going to come while we're here on this earth. We're always going to be tempted. The enemy is always going to be shooting these arrows at you. If they're fear, doubt, unbelief, lust, pride, gossip, envy, anger, whatever it is, he's going to be throwing these, at, these arrows at you at all times. However, when we make up our minds that this is sin, that we will have absolutely no part in it, these arrows are going to bounce right off our helmet because our mind is made up. Because your mind has been transformed and you're able to discern and not only to discern what God's will is about it, but to make that stubborn decision that I will not be a part of it. We take captive that thought. We make it obedient to Christ. And we reply with the truth and cast that aside. And it might just be simply saying, no devil, I'm a child of the king. I'm a son of the, or a daughter of the Lord of lords. That action honestly, is beneath my position in Jesus. That is beneath me. I want no part of it. That is what the helmet of salvation is doing. And that thought is exactly what Jesus said when the devil tried to tempt him in the desert. You remember the three temptations. Jesus is hungry. The devil offers him bread, or tells him to make bread. Jesus said to the devil, in effect, you want, me to, you want to try to give me physical bread? I have the word of God that holds the entire universe and you, by the way, together right now. You want to get me to try to threaten my life here on earth, but I have always existed and I will always exist. I couldn't die if I jumped from the highest height to the lowest depth because I'm eternally self-existent. Nothing can destroy me. You offer me this planet and its kingdoms? Devil, they're already mine. You just have a small temporary control over parts of it. And by the way, it exists within an entire universe that I, complete, that I have created and am completely control of. Jesus had the realization of who he was in God and the truth and that helmet protected his mind. In essence, Satan was trying to, to bribe a trillionaire with a penny. Jesus had that helmet of salvation firmly in place. He had his, his mind held his heart in check, and he triumphed over his enemy at every turn. Jesus' victory was also because he used the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in the way that it was supposed to be used. And so let's look at the, at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Bible has a wonderful description of what the Word of God is in Hebrews 4.12. It's one of those scriptures in your Bible that should be like triple underlined, highlighted, and memorized. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is the intention of the sword of the Spirit. And I want us to focus today by correcting a mindset about the sword of the Spirit that is often taught 
we have kind of a mental picture that the sword is something that we swing and stab at the enemy with. And there is some truth to that. I mean, after all, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church while he's chained to a Roman soldier who has a sword on. So there is some truth to that. However, when we read the entirety of the Bible, we see that the Word of God is to be first used on ourselves before we ever pick it up and swing it at somebody else. This truth has to be within our hearts for the sword to be used in the way God intended it to be used. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus tell us to remove the log from our own eye before we try to remove the speck in others? That's one of the reasons the world mocks the power of the Bible, because the people quoting it to them are not living it. The word has to be internalized within us before we can try to tell it to other people. Mahatma Gandhi said this about Christianity. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I would be persuaded to become a Christian if I saw what they proclaim was lived out in their lives. That came from Mahatma Gandhi. And the church is sometimes guilty of using the sword as a weapon to kill people with. And that was never God's intention for this word. Never. It is not a sword to kill. It is a scalpel to heal. Let me illustrate this a little. Let's say there's this this big guy or group of people outside right now that are threatening our lives. And only one of us can go outside, and the only weapon we have is, is a big ornamental sword. And I, and I say, Lucille, I'm going to give you this sword, and I want you to go outside and kill all those people that are trying to hurt us. Are you going to feel comfortable with that? Have you ever swung a sword in your life? No. You, you are totally unprepared to use that sword in a way that would be able to defend yourself at all, much less pick up a 20-pound broadsword. What if you were in a mall, say in brass, Bass Pro Shops in a mall, and you hear screaming and you decided that you're going to be looking at handguns today and you're the first time you've ever held a handgun and you hear screaming and you hear that somebody is out there with a couple of people with machetes are out there killing people in, in the name of Islam or, or terrorism or something. And the clerk throws you a loaded clip and said, let's go get them. Now, are you going to be ready to use that handgun in such a way to defend yourself? Most people probably have never taken a tactical handgun class, so you're not, a lot of people don't even know how to load the thing, much less work the action or anything else, or use the proper tactics to be able to, to defeat those enemies. You see, we'll, we'll go and swing a sword, and we'll go and try to figure out a handgun But we have been given the most powerful weapon ever created. And for some reason, we think we can go ahead and use it without learning to use it. That is just as dangerous as handing somebody a sword who has never wielded or a gun who has never held one. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, We know the law is good. The law referring to the entire Bible. We know that the law is good if... One uses it properly. The Bible's purpose is to show us the moral character of God. God's word is the complete revelation of himself and his plan of salvation. 
and we look at the law found within the Bible, and we discover what is right and what is wrong. We discover what is the glory of God and what shows the absence of God. We see what is black and we see what is white, um, white and we see what is right and what is wrong. And we're going to look more into that next week. But we can hold up this book and we can declare its truth in public. But when we do it from the wrong spirit, we're like a four-year-old swinging a machete. Nothing good can come from a four-year-old swinging a machete, amen? We need to learn how and when to use this sword. Some of us are so anxious, and this, this was a zeal I had when I first got saved. We're so anxious to show people where they are wrong, and we're so quick to just beat them over the head with the Bible, and it completely turns them off from the faith because we're not using the weapon the way it was meant to be used. We need to have a radical change in the way we do things. And it's going to be found in the way Jesus did it. You know how Jesus did it? Love first. Let me say that again. Love first. With the exception of his dealings with the religious hypocrites, Jesus always loved people before he spoke truth to them. And we have to do the same. The generation that we are in now, like my kids' generation especially, they're so jaded, they're so hard, they're so distrustful of anything or anyone that tries to declare an absolute truth to them that they'll automatically shut you down and refuse to listen until you show them what you believe. They're sick of people trying to tell them what is true. They need to see and experience that which is true. And that's going to be the challenge of the end times church, the church that you and I are in right now. We're going to have to actually start living out of this book. We're going to have to show faith and love and then earn the right to take the sword of the Spirit and use it as an instrument of healing, as a surgical instrument to cut out the cancer of sin from people's lives. But only, only after we've allowed God to do it to us first. Finally, I want to deal with the purpose of the armor of God. And it's found in the first part of verse 18 of Ephesians 6, which says, after all this, after he lists out the, the, the parts of the armor of God, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all praying and supplication. The whole meaning and the whole purpose of the armor of God is to enable us to pray effectively. That's the whole reason it exists. It is meant to keep us ready and respond to the slightest whisper and leading of the Holy Spirit as we seek God moment by moment, day by day in our lives. Truth protects our righteousness so that our heart is kept pure. Faith keeps our eyes focused on Him. The helmet of doubt erases all doubt that we are saved. While the sword of the Spirit penetrates our own heart and instructs us how to live in according to God's will. That is what spiritual warfare is about. It's all about prayer. What does praying in the Spirit mean? In the Pentecostal church, we have a a way of looking at this, and 
One of my friends is named Dean Niferatis. He's an evangelist. He's a revival speaker, very high energy. If we ever had him here someday, you'd be exhausted just listening to him speak. He speaks with probably about 200 words a minute. I mean, he's just, as he says, I'm Greek and it just pours out of me. But he always tells people when he does a revival meeting that any believer in Jesus should pray at least one hour a day in tongues. Not just pray an hour a day, but he should speak in tongues for an hour a day just to be um, recharged in the Holy Spirit. And I love Dean, and I think, I think that's a little extreme, at least for me. I don't think God's called me to do that. But Dean has a very strong point in making this kind of argument. He said, sometimes the reason our armor is so, so loose-fitting and so seemingly ineffective is that our spirit is not vitally connected to God who keeps that armor in place. And we need to connect with God's spirit through the discipline of prayer, through the discipline of expressing ourselves, maybe in tongues or maybe in words of English. It doesn't matter as much as it matters that we are connecting in a meaningful way with God. And that is how we fight as Christians. We fight on our knees in intercessory prayer. We fight by lifting up other people to God and begging that God that, that they be saved. And that's how we make a permanent impact on our lives and in the lives of others. That is what spiritual warfare is about. And that is the meaning of the armor of God, that we may stand in these evil times and fight on our knees. Amen? <coughs> Excuse me, let's stand. I want to refocus us a little this morning. It's been a rough couple of months for all of us, really, and especially in the church. It is very heated political climate. If you look at social media, you just see accusations being thrown around because one person likes this person, the other person likes that person. You know what? Jesus is the one on the throne, and that's who we should be focusing on. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote, but I'm just saying... We, we've, the church has really lost their way in the last few months. So I want to spend some time this morning letting God put our armor back on us and refocus us on the things that have eternal significance. A billion years from now, it's not going to matter who gets elected in a few weeks. It's, it's not going to matter. What matters is the church praying for the unsaved. What matters is the church seeking God that people will come to salvation. What matters is us being so focused on God that it is contagious to other people. That's what matters. So I'm not going to be posting social media posts about one candidate or the other. I'm not going to stand on a street corner and hold up signs. I'm not filling my front yard with signs supporting one party or candidate. Instead, I want to strap on my armor. And I want you to strap on your armor. And I want to pray in the Spirit for this nation. Amen.